0: Hey, this is Pastor Adam, and I just want to let you know up front that this is going to be a longer episode, maybe even a controversial one. I'm going to weigh in on the conflict in Israel today. I was surprised over the last few weeks at how few people actually asked about this. Actually, for a while, no one asked about this to me personally. And then eventually I started to hear things through the grapevine of people taking a position on it one way or another. Some people pro-Israel, some people pro-Palestinian. Not that that's a direct dichotomy, but those were some of the things that I heard. And I had uh, pastors ask me about it, and we talked about it as pastors uh, right away To decide whether we needed to say something about it what we decided to do was to have a prayer time about it that was right after the attack on october 7th but not to make a bigger statement about it because the the details of this uh, can be so nuanced and there's a lot of history involved it just you can't make a simple statement without really giving the wrong impression probably to a lot of people so we haven't made a major statement about this as a church yet and then on sunday I had a few people talk with me about it and some were representing the thoughts of other people too. And some people are outraged that we haven't made strong statements one way or another. Some people feel very strongly pro-Israel, some uh, more on the other side. And what I wish more people understood was that these kinds of hot button issues are not as easy and clear cut as we want them to be. Politicians can get up and make a simple, bold statement that energizes their base, but those statements usually fail to account for the nuance of the situation. And political pundits can yell angrily about one side of the issues and their audience eats it up. Anyone who knows more of the story rolls their eyes and stops listening. But it doesn't matter because a certain percentage of people will find those dogmatic statements to itch their ears and they will keep supporting it not knowing what they are missing. With many of these current events issues, a simple quick statement is not just naive, it's foolish. James 1.19 says, understand this my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to get angry. Proverbs 18.13 says, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. And Proverbs 16.32, better, be better to be patient than powerful, better to have self-control than to conquer a city. Whenever there's an issue that captures the news cycle, there are always people who want us to preach the news, to wade into the issue of the day or the week or the month. And of course, what some of them really want is for their side and their view to be publicly affirmed by the church. Now, foremost, I think what they really want is just some help understanding the situation better. And I can certainly appreciate that. But what we all need to understand is that a good biblical commentary on current events cannot be done quickly. It takes time to get enough information to make an accurate assessment. It takes time to understand what pieces of news are propaganda, and maybe propaganda by a certain country, even one that may not be involved directly in the conflict. I've already seen many commentators and Christians make bold statements based on information that turn out to be false. One thing I would love for people to remember is that no matter what is going on in the world, your response in almost every circumstance can only be to pray. And there's often not much more you can do than that. Whether or not you understand what exactly is happening and why makes almost no real difference on your life or your actions. It's just, I would like to know. Whether or not your church has released a statement in support of your particular perspective on some issue has no bearing on how you live a godly life. Your responsibility as a Christian is to trust God no matter what happens, to pray in all circumstances, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And as Proverbs 18, 13 says, we must be careful not to spout off until we know all the facts. And that's what we try to do as a church. So now we've had some time, some time to look at the facts when it comes to the current conflict in Israel. I've had a chance to talk about this with our pastors, and I've been tracking the news and commentary on it as closely as I can. I can't make a quick statement about this because it's too nuanced. What I'm about to share with you has taken tens of hours of research. And just to be honest with you, that's research that takes me away from my family a little bit. It takes me away from studying to preach. I've spent hours on this today that ideally would have been spent preparing the message for Sunday. It takes me away from time with our staff. I did have a meeting this morning with someone, but for the last several hours I've been working on this and really for the last few weeks, this has been a major focus of study for me. I think it's worth it for this issue, I do. I think this is worth talking about. Um, But I also hope people will understand that these kinds of commentaries and statements can't be made quickly or flippantly, and certainly not for every issue. They're often way more nuanced than we give them credit for. And by the end of this video, I hope you will see that. If I had made some statement about this conflict quickly, I guarantee you I would have been ignorant of some important details that needed more time to come out and required more information and study. And I've now watched a few different churches who made statements right away. And I've been really disappointed in their one-sided perspective and their failure to look at all the facts, just as what the Bible tells us to do, or their failure to consider facts that don't support their position. And to a certain base, that is just a red meat statement to them and they love it and, and they get pumped up about it and like, yeah, my church is taking a stand on this. But I got to be honest, from what I've seen, those statements aren't fully truthful. It's not that they're trying to lie. It's just that they're ignorant of all the details and they're not balanced in their approach. Um, And then I think for a a percentage of people that will disagree with them or that maybe are just more aware of some of the facts than they are, it gives them the impression that these Christians, they don't know what they're talking about. And so I should just write them off. They claim to be loving and compassionate, but look at how they they handle this. They they have one idea in mind and that's what they're going to go with and they just ignore all the facts on the other side. So I hope that what you will find for me today is a more balanced perspective. One that if you want to, you can share it with other people so they can see it. And you may you may disagree with me on some stuff today. You may not agree with my analysis. That's okay, that's fine. But I am going to try to bring A lot of facts that, uh, depending on who your news sources are, you may not have heard before. So here are the five questions for today. Number one, how should Christians think about the conflict in Israel? Secondly, how should Christians think about the two-state solution? Third, is Israel the good guy in this conflict? Fourth, do the Palestinians have a reason to be upset with Israel? And fifth is the conflict in Israel today related to biblical prophecy. I know a lot of people have been interested in that, and I'm excited to talk about that. So how should Christians think about the conflict in Israel? As I'm sure you're aware, but let me just make sure we're all on the same page here. The government of Gaza is Hamas. And on October 7th, they broke through the defensive wall around Gaza and brutally attacked raped and murdered well over a thousand people in Israel. I believe that I've seen now most of the footage that has been publicly released. There is a long video of nearly an hour, I think, of very graphic and horrible video content that has not been publicly released as far as I know, at least at this time. But some politicians and journalists have been allowed to see parts or all of it. I think that there are some larger screenings happening just so people can understand how vicious and horrible these attacks were. And the people who have watched this report back that after seeing the um, barbaric content, the, the horrible actions that were committed, they're just in shock and weeping over the atrocities that they saw. This was footage mostly recovered from Hamas's own soldiers, their fighters, as they committed these acts. There's even a phone call of a Hamas fighter calling his parents using the phone of one of his victims and describing his acts, wanting them to be proud of him. Hamas has released video of some of the atrocities themselves, including evidence of brutal rape and killings. So, how should Christians think about this? Well, it's horrifying. These are human beings made in the image of God, being treated wickedly and unjustly. These weren't military combatants who are fair game in an armed conflict. These were civilians, women, children, babies, burned alive, beheaded, tortured, raped, and their attackers didn't do this for strategic reasons as much as pure evil terror. There was no need to torture and rape. There was no need to target civilians explicitly, but that's what they did. The evidence is clear. The people who claim this was made up are living in a fairy tale world. Hamas isn't denying any of this. They're glorifying and celebrating it. And their allies around the world are celebrating it. The video footage, pictures, and posts online are irrefutable evidence. Again, some of it coming directly from Hamas. This was an atrocity on a scale we have not seen in a long time against peaceful civilians, in some cases, who were pro-peace, outspokenly, or even pro-Palestinian. Christians should be grieved by this sin. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, I think this is a part of that. We mourn for our own sin and we mourn when we see sin in the world. This was injustice. These were evil attacks on God's creation. And I think God's judgment will be severe for these people and rightly so. Christians should pray for the victims and the families of the victims. Christians should pray for the people of Gaza who are under Hamas rule. And believe it or not, Christians should pray for the leaders and the fighters of Hamas. Are any of them beyond redemption? Are they beyond the love of God and his forgiveness? No. If the apostle Paul, who pursued and persecuted Christians in a similar way, could be rescued and become a leader for Christ, then no one in Hamas is beyond that possibility. So pray for them. How should Christians think about the two-state solution? Israel has been in favor of a two-state solution for decades, and on five different occasions has offered or accepted a Palestinian state. Unfortunately, the Palestinians, even before Hamas existed, have always rejected the two-state solution. Their stated purpose has been that they will not allow a state of Israel to exist. This is not necessarily true of all Palestinians but many even outside of Hamas for decades have maintained that Israel must be destroyed. So they reject any plan that includes a state of Israel. That puts Israel and other countries like Egypt in a very tough spot. Egypt used to control the Gaza Strip. They didn't want it. They were happy to have Israel manage it instead. Israel would love to give it back to Egypt and Egypt doesn't want it. People forget that while Israel built a wall around Gaza, Part of Gaza borders Egypt, and they built a wall too. The Egyptian people don't really like the Gazan people. The U.S. recently was leaning hard on Egypt just to help the Gazan civilians at their border, and Egypt didn't want to. They sealed their country off so Gazans could not enter, even the civilians, even the wounded. And now some of that has been released recently, but that was the mindset that the Egyptians had toward the Gazans. They didn't want to help. And by the way, the Iranians and most of the rest of the Muslim world doesn't really care for the Gazans either. They don't want them in their countries. They don't necessarily want to support them uh, as Gazans. They're seen as lesser Muslims, and no one really wants them. They're useful pawns right now for Muslim governments that claim to support the Palestinian people but actually need the Palestinians to remain in this unstable, terror-focused humanitarian crisis that can be a thorn in Israel's side. Iran doesn't want a Palestinian state. They want a continual base to remotely terrorize Israel. And that goes for other Muslim-led countries that have supported Hamas as well. None of them actually seem to want to help the Palestinian civilians. When it comes to an Israeli state, it's interesting to me that in recent years, there's been this increased sensitivity to indigenous peoples in the U.S. and some other places. The farthest back we can trace a people group in the land of Israel is the Jewish people for an existing people group today. The other people groups that were there before Israel, they don't exist as peoples anymore. Jewish people had a state on that land going back thousands of years, and there's ample archeological evidence for that. And I don't actually think this is a strong argument for why Israel should have a state, but if the idea is that non-Jewish Palestinians had it first and the Jews took it away from them, well, the Jews had it before that, and it was taken away from them. So it's just not a very strong argument either way. Now, after the Jews returned in the primarily the the late 19th century and early 20th century, they bought land from the Arabs, and then eventually in 1948 were granted the right to become their own state, uh, their own country. I'm using those terms interchangeably here, of course. And although much smaller than their historical boundaries for the Israel state. They accepted this new state and there was going to be a non-Jewish Palestinian state there as well. But then several Muslim and Arab nations attacked them right away and Israel defended its land successfully, which essentially confirms their validity as a state. They defended their right. They weren't able to be overtaken. If the Muslim and Arab countries had been able to beat down Israel, this would not be a debate today. There just would be no state of Israel today. And most of the Jews, again, would be living in a diaspora spread all over the world, not at all in their historic homeland. So by just about any metric, Uh, Whether you look at their ancient history there or you look at their ability to defend their land after they were granted the right to a state by other countries alongside a non-Jewish Palestinian state at the time, that, that was the idea anyway, the Jewish people have a right to a state of Israel in that land. The Palestinians in that part of the world come from many different places. Many come from the Muslim invasion in the 600s. Some claim, though, that they can trace their ancestry back to the Roman occupation. I've met people that, that believe they have that lineage. Many were brought in by the Ottomans as workers. Palestinians are not all Muslims. They're not all Arabs. It's a very diverse group of people, actually, that comes from all over the place. It used to be that Jews were also called Palestinians. That's just what the region was called. It was Palestine. It had nothing to do with any particular people group. Now, I'm going to use the term Palestinian from here on to refer to non-Jewish Palestinians who have lived in that land for a long time. But those who believe that the Palestinians are the indigenous people of the land tend to be thinking about recent history. But the Jewish claim to that area goes back thousands of years earlier. And the various Palestinian peoples that moved in later, or in some cases were brought in as different groups, they took over the land that used to be Israel. At times, Palestinians and Jews have lived in relative peace there. At times, Christian crusaders have made military pilgrimages to force out Muslims and sometimes force out the Jews. The bottom line is Israel has the oldest and strongest claim to the region. If not for the conquest of Israel by the Romans, the Muslims, and others, there really would not be any debate about this. That whole region would be the continuing state of Israel as it was going back 3,000 years. But since there are now millions of Palestinians Palestinians, living there, non-Jewish Palestinians, and that is the only home they've ever known. And since none of their fellow Muslims want them in their countries, a two-state solution with a peaceful Palestinian state next to a peaceful Israeli state seems like the best solution. The problem is I don't see any way it can ever happen for three main reasons and lots of little ones. But here are the three main ones. First of all, Although Israel has five times offered them a state, the Palestinians refuse unless Israel is gone. Secondly, the influential Muslim-run nations find a stateless Palestine useful for their purposes, and they actually want to keep it that way. And perhaps most importantly, number three, the widespread Palestinian hatred of the Jews is not limited to Hamas. So a peaceful coexistence in the near future is seemingly impossible. You have to realize that the median age in Gaza right now is 18 years old, and it's only 17 years old for males. Hamas took power in Gaza in 2007. That's 16 years ago. And they run the education and indoctrination of the young people. That means that most of the people in the country, and certainly most of the able-bodied people, have only ever known Hamas indoctrination. In schools, kids are taught to hate Jewish people. You can watch videos of kids in Gaza being asked about their hopes and dreams for the future, and it includes killing Jewish people. Kids participate as an activity in military training and mock raids with full camo gear and and fake weapons. The young fighters who broke through and raped and killed on October 7th celebrated joyfully, not just the murder, but the torture and the pain they were causing. They called their parents to celebrate together. The civilians in Gaza are seen in numerous videos celebrating the atrocities. When hostages or dead bodies were brought back, civilians can be seen continuing to beat, disfigure, and disrespect those victims. This is not as simple as just giving the Palestinians their own state. They haven't accepted it so far, and I don't see that changing in the future. And even if they did, much of the population— from what I can tell, would continue to hate and try to kill Jewish people. It takes decades to undo that kind of programming. This is very different than World War II. In World War II, there were horrible and despicable Nazi leaders and some frontline soldiers who also did evil things. But there were lots of people who were just following orders or didn't even really understand what they were doing, but they got caught up in it. The ideological conditioning going on in Gaza is on another level it's closer to North Korea levels of brainwashing. And it means that just taking out Hamas and removing that leadership there won't solve the problem. It will just shrink it for a while. Not to mention the fact that none of the main Hamas leaders are actually there. They live in luxury in Qatar, directing Hamas's affairs from afar. They will try to find new leadership, new ways to infiltrate, new ways to capitalize on the suffering of Gazans for their purposes. Now, I do want to be clear. There are Palestinians Uh, Arabs and Muslims and Christians who want peace and are willing to coexist with Israel. That is much more the case in the West Bank, I think, than in Gaza. There's still some hatred toward Jews there too, among some of them, and some hatred toward Christians, even though there are Arab Christians living there. There's just an uneasy coexistence in the West Bank that sometimes boils over into skirmishes and fighting and sometimes acts of terror or crackdowns. But I think there's more of a possibility for working relationships with the West Bank Palestinians than with Gazan Palestinians right now. I don't mean to paint everyone with a broad brush, but the fact that this ideology and this hatred of Israel is so widespread and way beyond just Hamas means it's just not a simple solution to this conflict. Is Israel the good guy in this conflict? I think many Christians have been caught up in blind support for Israel because they've heard false teaching from pastors on this over and over, and it sounds and feels good. And I know that sounds like a bold statement. I will explain. The idea that the nation of Israel is God's chosen people, and he still has a role for them in his plan, and that the reformation of the state of Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy, and that in the Old Testament, God said he would bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel, has led some Christians, and especially conservative Christian leaders, to be almost as nationalistic about Israel as they are about the U.S. But is that the right way to look at this? Should we just support Israel 100%? Are they the righteous defenders? Are the Palestinians the enemies not only of Israel but of Christians as well? As you probably guessed, I have a more nuanced take. And I know some people will disagree with me, but please listen carefully because I think there are major problems with the blind unilateral support for Israel that many Christians have fallen into, not just with regard to geopolitics and ethics, but just as importantly when it comes to the Bible. First, let's look at what the Bible says that causes us to want to support Israel. In Genesis 1, we read this. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So that's the promise in God's covenant to Abram, who would become Abraham. His family will become a great nation and God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. Sometimes this is reinterpreted as God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. But that's not exactly what is said there. So is this a promise of blessing for all future Israeli states and governments? Imagine for a minute that you're an observer almost 3,000 years ago. You go back in time. You can see ancient Israel. You remember God's promise to bless those who bless and curse those who curse, right? Well, David is king of a united Israel and then Solomon and then Rehoboam, but now the kingdom divides and the line of David becomes kings of a state called Judah. So that's his family are now kings of Judah, which makes up two tribes of Israel. And the other 10 tribes to the north form their own state with a new and different government, but they keep the name of Israel. Who does the blessing apply to now? At times, these two kingdoms fought with each other. Who gets the blessing? Who's cursed and who's not? At times, these kingdoms had wicked leadership and did despicable things. Are they to be supported in that? As an observer from the future, who do you root for? Do you bless Israel, the northern kingdom, even though they don't have the Davidic or Messianic line in charge and their governments are all evil? Do you bless the southern kingdom of Judah, even when they have mostly evil governments as well? Or does this blessing In Genesis, really have nothing to do with the state of Israel or any governments of Israel, but have more to do with Abram, his descendants, and the plan of salvation. I think it's option B. So, Christians, in my opinion, have no reason to blindly support the Israeli government or even the state of Israel. We have no reason to think that the Israeli government or the current state of Israel is always righteous in their causes and automatically the good guy. We could look at most of the kings throughout Israel's history and condemn their actions. Even the good kings, we can often find things in scripture that we would condemn about their choices in leading their country. And so it should be today. Israel is not a theocracy led by a king in the Davidic line. Israel is a secular nation. Israel is actually more restrictive on Christians and evangelism than many other secular nations. And the government of Israel has in many ways made mistakes, made life unnecessarily difficult for Palestinians, and committed unjust acts that have resulted in suffering and death of people in their region unnecessarily at times. I don't say this as someone who's anti-Israel. I'm pro-Israel in the same way that I'm pro-American. I want what's best for both. I will celebrate both when they do good and I mourn when they do bad. But there is no inherent goodness in the Israeli government today and no reason for Christians to blindly support the Israeli government without being aware and holding in balance the fact that they are not blameless. Is Israel right to defend itself and even take punitive action against the attackers of October the 7th? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's even a biblical principle. Governments exist to protect innocent people with the sword. What is happening in Gaza right now is more of a police response than a military invasion. It's just on a scale that only a military could do. They are going house to house looking for the people who perpetrated and supported the attack on October 7th that killed over 1,200 people and victimized many more. Not to mention the around 240 hostages held by Hamas in Gaza right now. Israel has the right and they have the duty to pursue and retrieve those innocent people, the hostages, and punish anyone who stands in their way and those who committed the crimes on October 7th. Now, if you think that Israel has not been innocent in this whole conflict over the past few decades, join the club. I'm right there with you. But that does not mean it's okay for Hamas to commit these atrocities and go unpunished. But what about the human shields? Hamas is trying to keep Israel, is using to try to keep Israel from pursuing justice. That's despicable to use human shields. It's, it's tragic. Israel should do whatever it can to keep those people safe. It should try to minimize civilian casualties as much as possible, but it should not view that as a reason to not pursue justice for these murders. The blood of the human shields is on the hands of Hamas for using them in that way. And part of the responsibility for the current situation lies with the general Palestinian population in Gaza in particular for electing and continuing to allow Hamas to rule in this way. I know many individual Palestinians don't like it, and I know some Palestinians have openly stated that they try to leave and Hamas shoots at them, but there comes a time when the citizenship must stand up against a tyrannical government that abuses them. Some Palestinians do work with the Israelis against Hamas. But some Palestinians pretend to be civilians only to actually be working with Hamas. There's video of this. People dressed in press uniforms who are actively helping Hamas attack Israelis. There's even evidence of UN paid peace workers helping Hamas. So I think it's foolish to say that Israel should just not pursue justice for this attack and justice against these barbaric acts if Hamas uses its own people as hostages. You can't let that be a winning strategy for terrorists. If all a terrorist group needs to do to ensure they never face the consequences of their actions is use their own people as human shields, then there will never be any justice. And these kinds of things will just happen more and more. But if Israel does all they can to attack only legitimate targets and warn civilians to leave, and those civilians choose to stay or Hamas forces them to stay, that injury or death is a crime committed by Hamas. Hamas built their headquarters under a hospital. They build weapon stations and launch sites under and over schools. When the EU donated over a billion dollars to build water infrastructure and 30 miles of pipes in Gaza, Hamas dug it up and turned the pipes into rockets. They even made videos showing this and bragging about it. They deprived their own people of clean water because of their hatred for Israel. Israel has been providing water, electricity, concrete, food to Gaza for many years. You would think that would lead to some goodwill and peace talks, but Hamas takes these things for its military efforts. It takes the concrete meant for homes and schools and uses it to build tunnels for invasions. So is Israel Israel the good guy in all of this? If you look at the broader scope of the conflict, well, no, there's good and there's bad. But is Hamas the bad guy in this? Definitely. There is no good in Hamas. And I support Israel's effort to bring them to justice for their crimes even though I'm not going to blindly support everything Israel does or ignore when they do something wrong. And by the way, many Jews in Israel feel this way. They know their government has problems and many of them disagree with how the state handles things when it comes to the Palestinians. They are fairly united right now in their response to October 7th, but divided on how to handle the broader conflict. Do the Palestinians have reason to be upset with Israel? Yes, and for many reasons. In some cases, Israelis have purchased land from Arabs in good-faith negotiations. But in other cases, Arabs were forced from their homes, either by manipulation or actual force, and replaced with Jewish settlers. There are numerous stories of Arabs being mistreated, discriminated against, and sometimes killed unjustly by Israeli forces. One of my friends who lives in the West Bank has been treated poorly by Israeli forces, and he's an Arab Christian. There are times where Israel takes action preemptively or reacts with a heavy hand, and many civilians get caught up in the crossfire unnecessarily. And I'm not just talking about Gaza here, but the West Bank and the settlements as well. The way things are set up currently, it's closer to a caste system and apartheid for many Palestinians, and it is degrading and economically damaging for them. At the same time, there are many things we can point to with the Israeli government and support them. They seem to take extra effort to warn and remove civilians before their responsive attacks in Gaza. They have many Israeli Arabs, some call themselves Palestinians, some do not, who are citizens in Israel and serve in politics and even in their military. Some of them choose to serve in the military in Israel, even though they don't have to. They're not, they're not forced to if they're not Jewish. Israeli Arabs of Palestinian descent have the same rights and freedoms as any Jewish person. So That's an example of what would be great for all Palestinians. Now, some Palestinians don't have full citizenship. Some of them only have work permits if they're based out of the West Bank, and so this is certainly not true for all, but but for some, it's, it's a model that would be great to see more of. Prior to the October 7th attack, Israel was trying out a work program where Gazans were allowed to enter Israel, work in Israel, and provide for people back in Gaza. So, There were steps being taken by Israel to try to improve the plight of the Gazan people and hopefully work against this divide that is there. My point in all of this is to hopefully expose you to some of the facts that maybe you weren't aware of. If you're on the pro-Israeli side, you need to know that there's good and bad with the Israeli government. The Israeli government is not what God is talking about when he speaks of blessing and cursing. And remember that there were more evil governments in Israel's history than good ones and that's straight from scripture. So be careful about blindly supporting them. It's way more complicated than that. I've had a few people want me to give very strong statements of support for Israel, but generally I don't think they really understand what that means. It's just more nuanced and complicated than that. I support their right to do what they're doing as they pursue justice, but even in that, they may take actions and do things that, um, that, are, that I think would be the wrong things to do. So I'm not going to just blindly support everything that they do. Now, if you're on the pro-Palestinian side, you need to realize that Israel has tried five times to give them their own state. The Palestinians rejected it each time, and that was before Hamas was even in the picture. And they rejected it because many of them simply do not want Israel to exist. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is code for Israel must be destroyed so it can all belong to the other non-Jewish Palestinians. But the Jewish claim to that land goes back thousands of years and the Arab claim not nearly as far. You also need to recognize that the general population of Gaza in particular is not oriented towards freedom as much as the destruction of Israel. Not all But many, if not most, are brainwashed into this ideology. If the Palestinian people were to throw away their weapons and commit to peace with Israel, there would be a free and independent Palestinian state tomorrow. If Israel did the same and threw away their weapons, they would be slaughtered and destroyed by Hamas and other Palestinians. I can't stress this enough, though. It's not all Palestinians that feel this way, but enough that the outcome would be horrendous. And then all the Palestinians, whether peace-loving or not, would be under the totalitarian rule of the same government that oppresses Gaza today. Is the conflict in Israel today related to biblical prophecy? Yes, but not in the way some people think. The Bible describes in Ezekiel 36-38 to 38, a return of Jews to their homeland. It says that the kingdom won't be divided anymore. It says that this will happen gradually in stages, like the parts of a body being rebuilt piece by piece, not all at once. In Ezekiel 37, 11, we read, then he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All our hope is gone. Our nation is finished. So the bones are Israel. And you may have heard of the dry bones and them coming back together. And that's a, an analogy to refer to Israel coming back together. And it's explicitly stated here. The Jewish people for hundreds of years prior to the 20th century were dispersed, scattered, scattered. Uh, scattered all over the world, withered up as a people. And yet through hundreds of years, these communities remained relatively intact. And actually the persecution of them around the world kept them from integrating into the sociological melting pots of their host nations. So persecution actually kept them a more distinct people. It was a blessing in disguise in some ways then in and around the turn of the 20th century waves of jewish people started returning to the land of israel they started buying as much of the land as they could from the palestinian people the non-jewish palestinians that were living there many of them arabs after 1948 when the state of israel was reformed about a million holocaust survivors returned and then about 800,000 jews came in who were driven out by the arabs in other countries so you have arab countries oppressing the Jewish people who are like, let's get out of here and get back to this place that now can be our state. Then 1.5 million Jews came from the former Soviet countries. Ezekiel 37.8 describes a reunited nation, but not yet restored to God. Listen to this, Ezekiel 37.8. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. So the bodies coming back together. The skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Eventually, God will breathe breath into them, Ezekiel says. And this is reminiscent of the creation of Adam, right? The body and the breath going into it. And eventually, they will recognize God and follow him again. But right now, we are in the stage where Israel is reunited as a nation. The skin is there, but they're not reunited with God yet. They don't have the breath in them. And eventually, God talks about pouring out his spirit on them as a part of that. Ezekiel 38 also talks about an attack on Israel. And some people have wondered if the Hamas attack might be the start of that. Here's why I don't think the current conflict is directly related to these prophecies. Ezekiel prophesies that the coming battle against Israel will happen when Israel is at peace and thinks everything is good. The attack will be unexpected. It will be led by a nation that Ezekiel calls Magog, which is generally thought to be Russia. Magog will lead a coalition of militaries to include several nations that are Muslim states today against Israel. They weren't, of course, Muslim states back when Ezekiel prophesied because Islam didn't exist back then. But these now Muslim-led states and Magog, likely Russia, will form a coalition that will move against and attack Israel from the north. Now, the conflict today was started by Palestinians in the south. And it wasn't started by a great nation to the north with a huge army, which is what the Bible describes. In the Bible, when these nations attack, they believe that Israel is unprotected. That's their view. The Bible describes them as thinking, we will come in easily and wipe them out. They don't have much of a defense. Well, that's certainly not the case right now. Uh, the In the Bible, these nations think that Israel is incredibly wealthy and that they think the world revolves around them. I don't think we could quite say that today. I mean, they are wealthy relative to many other nations in that area, but I'm not sure if it would be fair to say that they're ridiculously wealthy and that they think the world revolves around them. That's probably something to come in the future. In Ezekiel, no one comes to the defense of Israel. God has to intervene for them militarily because they are unprepared and they are alone. They believe they're at peace and have basically let their guard down, I think. But today, many nations support Israel. The U.S. has been shooting down missiles headed for Israel and plans to send more military aid. Some other countries support Israel. But at the same time, this conflict does demonstrate how plausible these prophecies in Ezekiel are. The thought that Israel could be a nation again a couple hundred years ago was unthinkable, but now it is. And the idea that a great nation to the north would ally with all of these now Islamic nations to attack Israel would have seemed very far-fetched even a few decades ago, let alone a few hundred years ago, when these countries didn't have anything uh, that would pull them together necessarily, or a couple thousand years ago. But now we see that stage as being set. Russia and China want to work with Islamic countries to form an alternate marketplace outside the control of the West. They're working to set up alternate banking and investment markets. The sanctions of Russia in the last couple of years have shown them the need to form new partnerships. Iran is a major military partner now, even setting up a drone factory in Russia. Russia has now made statements against Israel. And we saw news reports and video footage recently of mobs in Russia looking for Jews to attack them and putting markers on Jewish businesses and homes reminiscent of Nazi Germany. It's hard to imagine that happening in Russia, but it is. We know that the demographics in Russia don't look good for the next several decades. They're losing a lot of able-bodied working age people and they're not replacing them quickly enough. So is it possible that Israel is about to experience a period of relative peace and great prosperity? And they might even become more of the economic center of the world in the near future. Russians may experience, on the other hand, an economic downturn after this war in Ukraine, losing so many able-bodied men, losing a lot of capital and resources, going into a few decades of economic struggle where only their partnerships with China and Islamic countries are keeping them going as a country. Is it possible that in the next 50 years, the Russian government, out of extreme jealousy, might be able to turn their people against the Jews and convince the other nations to attack Israel together? I think that's very possible but it will be a while before they can pull that off. They will need to rebuild military capacity after the Ukraine war. They need stronger alliances and integration with the Muslim nations. Israel right now can field a well-equipped army of about five and a half million people if they need to, which means a meaningful invasion will require three to five times that. The logistics of pulling that off with 15 to 25 million invading forces, are just way beyond the technical capabilities of Russia or any of the surrounding nations right now. And Ukraine has proven that. The Bible describes it, though, as a vast army. Hordes of people, it says, who are well-armed. They think they will destroy Israel easily and no one can stop them. No one would think that today, but in a few decades, it could happen. Now, I wanna make sure I end this on a positive note because that's where the Bible ends on this issue and you need to know the outcome. Even though all of these nations will attack Israel, God himself will step in and defend them. Ezekiel says that God will use earthquakes, diseases, torrential rain, hailstones, fire, burning sulfur. He'll even cause the enemies to fight each other, which if the invasion is going that poorly, it's not hard to imagine these nations turning on one another. And that leads us to this little passage in Ezekiel chapter 39. In Ezekiel 39, we read, so now this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will end the captivity of my people. I will have mercy on all Israel for I jealously guard my holy reputation. They will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they come home to live in peace in their own land with no one to bother them. When I bring them home from the lands of their enemies, I will display my holiness among them for all the nations to see. Then my people will know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them away to exile and brought them home again. I will never, I will leave none of my people behind and I will never again turn my face from them for I will pour out my spirit upon the people of Israel. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. That's a great ending. And we have that to look forward to. And that hope, in spite of all the turmoil we see today. Now, I know it's called a Five Questions Podcast, but I have one more bonus question I want to throw at you. What's next for Israel and Palestine? Well, right now, Israel's response is underway. It will be several weeks before we really understand what's going on there. Information will come out selectively. Much of what we've seen confirms the accusations against Hamas of building under civilian infrastructure and using human shields. Israel has stated that it wants to occupy Gaza and that may be necessary for some time. If you just find and wipe out Hamas, another terrorist group will take its place. There are others still operating in Gaza besides Hamas, Um, though Hamas has killed off the ones that really strongly oppose them. Hamas is not the only group there, organized group there. So that leadership vacuum will just lead to other terrorist groups kind of filling that in. Maybe at some point, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank works out an agreement with Israel to oversee both Gaza and the West Bank. And Israel then pulls out of Gaza again. It is hard to see that happening anytime soon, as many of the Palestinian people would see any agreement made by the PA. That's the Palestinian Authority. Any agreement between the PA and Israel would be viewed as delegitimizing the PA. You're not supposed to do anything in agreement with Israel. So the PA would probably have to do some public relations work maybe covertly, to try to convince some of the more militant Palestinians that an agreement with Israel is a necessary evil to accomplish their more nefarious purposes eventually. But at the same time, they would need to make sure the international community believed that this was headed toward a peaceful two-state solution. It is unlikely that other nations will get involved right now just because they lack the resources and military power to do anything. All they can really do is lob a few missiles at Israel, which is kind of what they've been doing. They certainly can't take on the U.S. and the U.K. and Israel. France was supportive for a while, but they probably won't help much at this point, and they're already turning on Israel a bit. We're probably entering an uneasy stalemate, where Yemen, Hezbollah, and Lebanon, and possibly Iran launch cruise missiles at Israel every now and then, and Israel and the U.S. will shoot most of them down. Maybe some will get through occasionally. Israel will strike back on launch sites and weapons factories. The U.S. will probably help with intelligence but let Israel do the actual attacking unless the new B-21 stealth bomber is so far beyond Israel's capabilities and if the U.S. won't let Israel get it right away, then the U.S. may secretly help with some of the missions because it can fly in and out undetected with major payloads to wipe out targets. Israel would probably still be credited with the attack unless The U.S. wants a more direct conflict to open up and wants that to be visible. And there is an argument that a direct conflict for the U.S. would be important or maybe even essential to a Biden re-election. The attacks by Iranian proxies on U.S. forces, which have already resulted in some deaths and a lot of injuries, could be used as justification for that. We're too far out right now for that to be very helpful for the election, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's more military action from the US next summer if the geopolitics allow for it, because that will be viewed as a boost to Biden's re-election chances. Now, I've used the word probably a lot here because all of this is speculation. It's based on the best information that I can get my hands on today, but I'm sure this will develop and change tomorrow. Let me leave you with this. Pray for the people of Israel. Pray for the Palestinian people. Pray that more people on both sides would come to know Jesus as Savior. Thanks.